Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us on this Thursday. A lot of developments overnight. A huge surprise in court yesterday. Yes, not at all what folks were expecting. Not at all. We'll get into what it means. Let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, July 27, 2023. New questions this morning about what happens now for Hunter Biden after his plea deal fell apart in court. His legal team is now scrambling after the judge put the deal on hold. Prosecutors also confirming in court that the investigation into the president's son is still ongoing. New overnight, CNN has learned Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell has fallen multiple times this year. The incidents taking place during an overseas trip and also at a D.C. airport. McConnell is brushing off health concerns that arose in the wake of him freezing mid-sentence during a news conference on Wednesday. The unrelenting heat wave that's been scorching this country is moving further east today. An emergency alert has already been declared for the country's largest power grid. President Biden set to announce a new heat-related action today. The world is mourning an international pop star this morning who was known as much for her fearlessness as she was for her music. Sinead O'Connor has died at the age of 56. And happening overnight, the U.S. women's soccer team clawing its way back to tie the Netherlands in a 1-1 draw. Up next, Portugal. Cena This Morning starts right now. where we begin this hour. We have new CNN reporting this morning on Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He has fallen more times this year than previously known. This report comes as the 81-year-old Republican insists fine after he froze mid-sentence yesterday for 23 seconds. We're on a path to finishing the NDA uh, this week. It's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of McConnell's fellow senators, you heard them there, checking on him, asking if he was all right. They pulled him to the side. He did eventually, though, return to the podium. Could you address what happened here at the start of the press conference? And was it related to your injury from earlier this year where you suffered a concussion? Is that... No, I'm, I'm fine. You're fine? You're fully able to yeah. do your job? And, So this is just the latest incident this year for Leader McConnell. Sources telling CNN in February he tripped and fell in Helsinki while getting out of the car. It was a snowy day there. He was there to meet with the Finnish president. Uh, That was just days before he fell in March. That happened at D.C.'s Waldorf Astoria Hotel, where he slammed his head, suffering a concussion and breaking ribs. During a press conference in June, he had trouble hearing questions from reporters, uh, even though the senators next to him could clearly hear. Take a look. 
your concerns as it relates to AI. Repeat that again. On, on AI, are you concerned at all about artificial intelligence and, and what are your concerns related to that? How should Congress address it? What is my concern about? Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. About what? I had a hard time hearing your voice. Sorry about that. On artificial intelligence? AI? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think everybody's concerned about AI. Earlier this month, McConnell tripped and fell at Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. while getting off a plane. Yesterday, as you saw, he abruptly stopped speaking mid-sentence while at the podium. Let's get to CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Obviously, everyone first wants to know how his health is, how he's doing. And then there is the question that Manu posed to him. Are you able to, to do your job to continue like this? Yeah, and he said repeatedly yesterday that he was fine. He also said that later in the day, as he left his office, it had been several hours since the incident, and as he departed for part of the day, he was telling reporters that he got sandbagged, trying to make a joke, saying that the current president called him actually to check on him. Here's McConnell. The president called to check on me. I told him I got sandbagged. Oh, nice. How are you feeling now, sir? Uh, How are you feeling now? I'm fine. Have you seen a doctor? Are you going to Any see idea what happened? Huh? Any idea what happened? I'm fine. That's Dehydrated? <laughs> Gotta watch those sandbags. And all we know about what happened yesterday is what his office is telling us, that he got lightheaded, that he had to step away for a moment. And then when he came back, his office points out he was able to answer a series of questions very succinctly, able to continue on with the press conference, which he did. He took a series of questions not just on his health, but also on the impact of impeachment on the country and on the Republican Party. So it their point is that he's totally fine. But as you point out, there have been a number of incidences over the last several months. And he has been asked about his political future. Our colleague Manu Raju back in May sat down with him for a story on the U.S. Senate map and taking back the Senate. And he tried to sort of push uh, McConnell at that time about what his political future was. McConnell didn't want to get into it, didn't want to answer the question, saying just that this was not an interview about his political future. So obviously there are a lot of questions about what happened yesterday. He did not answer repeated questions about whether he saw a physician. His office did not answer those questions. So we just are going to continue pressing to get more information on how the senator is doing, what his health status is. And of course, that larger looming question of does this affect his ability to do the job? Which so many people, I find it's so interesting that his office will not confirm whether he saw a doctor to you, Lauren. That That is fascinating. That has been the number one concern I think you've seen from people in terms of, as you point out, you'll also be pressing for that reaction on the Hill. Are people concerned about his role and whether he'll be able to, to carry it out? What have you heard so far? Yeah, Erica, if you talk to Republicans who are very close with McConnell, they will tell you that they have full trust in his ability to carry out his job. They say that, you know, they trust McConnell to make decisions about his own health, that they believe that he is making the best decisions that he can. You know, but obviously it was a scary moment yesterday. And you saw in that video that as he's sort of having this moment of freezing, there are colleagues who are checking on him. John Barrasso, who is a fellow member 
of Leadership, but also a doctor, you know, says, Mitcher, do you have anything else to say? Are you okay? And that is obviously a moment in which you can see sort of just larger concern within his leadership team about, you know, that incident in particular. But if you talk to them, they say they believe in their leader. They say that it is up to him to make decisions about his health and his future. Lauren, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. This morning, Hunter Biden's legal fate is in serious question. This is after his plea deal collapsed at the last minute in this remarkable, really unprecedented court hearing yesterday. The federal judge put it all on hold as the president's son was preparing to plead guilty to tax crimes to avoid prosecution on a felony gun charge. This hearing was supposed to be quick, 30 minutes, just a formality, but it turned into an hours-long ordeal as the judge raised questions about this deal. She called it unusual, at one point asking if it was even constitutional. So the judge said she would not be a rubber stamp there. The deal began to unravel when the judge asked if it gave Hunter Biden broad immunity for other possible crimes, including in his foreign business dealings in Ukraine and China. But when a prosecutor responded no, Hunter Biden's lawyer snapped back that in that case, the deal would be null and void. Let's bring in now CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray. So, Sarah, I think a lot of people in reaction or wondering, how did they even get to that point? Yeah, I mean, this is not the day that anyone expected to have in court. As you said, Hunter Biden walked into that federal courthouse in Delaware, prepared to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and strike a deal to complete a program that would allow him to avoid a felony gun charge. But as the judge was sort of pressing about what the scope of this deal encompassed, things began to fall apart. And Politico obtained a copy of the a version of this plea deal. CNN has not verified that it's the final version, but I want to read you part of it because it gets into, you know, the scope of what this deal was supposed to encompass. It said the United States agrees not to criminally prosecute Biden outside of the terms of this agreement for any federal crimes encompassed by the statement of facts. This agreement does not provide any protection against prosecution for any future conduct by Biden or by any of his affiliated businesses. So as the judge is running through this, making sure Hunter Biden knows what he's pleading to, she says, you know, is this an ongoing investigation? And Prosecutors confirm it is. And they say, and the judge says, so, you know, you can't bring maybe charges against him for tax crimes, but could you bring charges against him for foreign lobbying? And the prosecutors say, yes, we could. And that is the point when the deal begins to fall apart. Hunter Biden's attorneys say that's not our understanding. They take a recess. They come to an agreement again about this deal, the prosecution and the defense, and say, OK, OK, we've reached a deal in which prosecutors will not prosecute Hunter Biden for tax crimes over a five-year span. They're not going to pr prosecute him for drug offenses. They're not going to prosecute him on this firearms offense. And that is the scope of it. And then as the judge continues to look this over, she takes issue, especially with this deal to avoid the felony firearms charge and essentially says, I'm not going to uh, reject it or accept it, but I want more information. I'm going to put this on hold. And she has given both sides 30 days, essentially, to answer some of her questions and concerns about this plea deal. Sarah, you've reported on this so closely for so many months. There is a world in which a plea deal does not come together, right? And where this could go to trial? I mean, there is, of course, a world. I mean, I think the way we saw yesterday play out, the way this deal fell apart, came back together, the judges' concerns about it, there is always a chance that this is the kind of thing that ends up going to trial, which I don't necessarily think is what prosecutors want in this case. My colleagues have previously reported prosecutors had some concerns about some parts of the strength of this case as they've been investigating Hunter Biden. And obviously, uh, it seems like Hunter Biden would like to avoid a trial. So I think what's most likely is they're both sides are going to 
to go back and try to craft a plea agreement that they think is going to satisfy the judge, maybe make tweaks to the one they have, or at least be able to answer the judge's questions more efficiently. But you can't rule out the possibility that this could be something that goes to trial. And again, because uh, Hunter Biden was not able to get that deal signed off on in court yesterday, he did this pro forma move of pleading not guilty. Mm -hmm. Sarah, thank you for the reporting. Yeah. Let's bring in FCN and senior legal analyst and former federal and New Jersey state prosecutor, Ellie Hoding. Ellie, when you look at this, we have this proposed, proposed plea deal. How do you get to the point where you show up in front of a judge and you have the DOJ and Hunter Biden's attorneys who have such a different view of what the agreement is that they all agreed to? It's a great question. In large part, it was a failure of lawyering. It was a failure by DOJ. It was a failure by Hunter Biden's lawyers to communicate and made sure that they had the agreement set. Now, the key language that Sarah just talked about in that plea agreement essentially says Hunter Biden will not be further prosecuted for anything laid out in the statement of facts. If you look at that document, there is a statement of facts. It's about four pages and it lays out Hunter Biden's business history, making millions of dollars, by the way, from Chinese companies and from Ukrainian companies and his drug use history. Now, this is where the legalese comes in. There's play on this. DOJ apparently reads that to mean only the tax stuff that's talked about in the actual text. Hunter Biden's lawyers said, well, we sort of understood it to mean anything in the periphery, anything that might touch on any of his foreign dealings at all. That was the disconnect. And when the judge identified that, she said, you don't have a deal. Yeah. By the way, the judge here, meticulous in her in her questioning, a former patent attorney. Yeah. Uh, it was really interesting to just hear as Kara was coming out of the court and, and reporting that as this was going step by step. Uh, the question was ambiguity yeah. and how, how ambiguous this language is. And then the issue of fair, potential FARA charges came up. Can you explain to people what that is and why that matters? Yeah, so first of all, I think the judge is the only person in the courtroom yesterday who did her job yeah. properly. The judge, when the judge was trying to explore this disconnect, what is he covered for, what is he not? The judge said, interestingly, she said, would he be covered for FARA, which is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which says if you are lobbying the U.S. government on behalf of a foreign government, you have to register with DOJ. Hunter Biden had not registered. And DOJ here said he's not covered for that. And Hunter Biden's team went, whoa, that's a problem. And that is crucial. Is he still chargeable for this under their agreement or not? And when the judge identified that, she said, you all need to go back to the drawing can board I, here. Can I just ask you, why wouldn't they think that that was possible? Why wouldn't Hunter Biden's team <laughs> think? Because this is anything but a normal case. And that letter from David Weiss, was it a month or so ago, right. did say that the investigation was ongoing. I know we all thought that was sort of pro forma, but apparently it wasn't. I think the answer is undue optimism. I think they were hoping he would be covered. Maybe that clearly they never had a direct conversation about this with prosecutors, which is not good practice by defense. It's important to understand a plea agreement is an agreement. It's a contract. It's the most important contract you will ever, not you too, but one will ever. Let's hope we never have hope. a plea agreement, Bobby. One would hope. <laughs> you never know. Uh, it's the most important contract one will ever enter into. Forget about buying a house or, or something like that. A plea agreement is your future, and the judge has to do her job there and make sure there is not going to be a dispute down the line about what this means. What you are buying here, defendant, you have to fully understand. All right. Ellie, appreciate it. Uh, we will be checking in I'll with you. Yes, you will. Ellie gets no breaks here. More than a third of the entire United States population this morning, again, under heat alerts. Record smashing heat wave spreads from coast to coast. We'll take you live to South Florida for the latest. And this. Nothing 
tributes pouring in for singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor after learning that she has passed away at the age of 56. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, a fascinating development. We've just learned that Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin is in St. Petersburg, Russia, in the same city as Putin, the man he tried to depose in an armed rebellion just last month. Or Nick Robertson following it all. Not exile in Belarus? No, we know that CIA director Bill Burns had said that he that he believed that Prigozhin had been in Belarus, but was moving around, including in Russia. And this is the first time we've seen Prigozhin in public. Uh, it appears to be perhaps a hotel meeting with what appears to be uh, a leader or a member of the African delegations that are meeting in St. Petersburg right now. Putin's have a hosting this big African delegation uh, meeting, 17 leaders uh, and 50 more than almost 50 different countries represented. Who Prigozhin is meeting there and is looking very relaxed and smiling and that leader's looking relaxed and smiling. We don't know yet. We're working on that, of course. Um, but what we do know is just this week, Wagner was speak, uh, Prigozhin was speaking to uh, an African media outlet and telling them on a, vo- on a voice note that Wagner, his mercenary company, is still in business in Africa. Any country that is doing business with it will continue. Any country that is starting to do business, it will continue. And of course, we know that Wagner intrinsically tied up with Kremlin and Putin's interests in Africa and gold mining and any number of concessions in a list of countries, Central African Republic, Mali, Mozambique, Libya, uh, to name but just a couple, um, that, that Prigozhin has been working for the Kremlin, essentially, in these African states. And here it is again, it appears as if he is very much still in business, as he was telling this African media outlet uh, earlier this week, uh, making good, it seems, with with certain African leaders and potentially extending uh, and still having an involvement in the Kremlin's interest there. Interesting in those comments Prigozhin made was the only limit for Wagner at the moment was, and this is super interesting, Thing, is that they cannot do anything that contravenes the national interests of Russia. Is that the totality of his rap, uh, the rap on the knuckles he got for that rebellion? Keep your friends close, your enemies closer, maybe. Nick Robertson, thank you. Erica. This brutal heat wave we've been covering so closely continues to smother the U.S. And this is probably the worst July we ever had. Oh my God, this is hell on earth, I guess. You know, it's just that hot. This is hell. We want heaven. This is unreal. Uh, day, night, never seen anything like it. You may be feeling exactly the same way as those folks, and there are going to be even more people feeling it today. New this morning, 140 million Americans under heat alerts. And there's also an emergency alert that's been declared for the nation's largest power grid. That could impact electricity for 65 million people across 13 states and in Washington, D.C. Also new this morning, we've learned President Biden will meet with the mayors of Phoenix and San Antonio to talk about those soaring temperatures and also announce some new measures to protect workers from extreme temperatures. The threat there is real. We probably don't have to tell you that. But take a look at some of this. In Yuma County, Arizona, a 25-year-old farm worker and father of two 
lost consciousness while working and later died. Neighboring Maricopa County says 25 people have now died as a result of the heat so far. That county does encompass Phoenix, where temperatures reached a record 118 degrees yesterday. Derek Van Dam is joining us live this morning from Key Biscayne, Florida. We've been talking so much about the heat of the water even in Florida. As this heat spreads, how much worse is it going to get? Yeah, it is all about the heat and people who thought that they were protected from the summer heat wave. Well, it's coming for you and I'm looking at you, New York City, D.C., Philadelphia. Today is going to be an absolute scorcher, dangerous heat. But we're in Key Biscayne, in Miami specifically, because of how that heat has transpired into our oceans directly behind us. We're following up on a very important story, a uh, crucial environmental, unfortunately, catastrophe that is unfolding right before our eyes, the bleaching and eventual uh, mortality of coral reefs within this area. We'll highlight that in just one moment, but uh, did you know that 90% of excess greenhouse warming is actually stored within our oceans? And it was so apparent this week with temperatures skyrocketing over 100 degrees in the waters behind me. But let's talk about the heat wave uh, across the US. You mentioned Phoenix. This is amazing. Just three hours ago, temperatures there dropped below 90 degrees Fahrenheit for the first time in 16 days. That is their longest stretch on record. They have never done that. Think about what that means for your body. No opportunity to actually uh, get cool overnight when your body anticipates that relief, right? Well, look at this. Excessive heat warnings now issued for New York City. It has been 710 days since the last time that you experienced heat just like this. This is certainly the hottest temperatures you have felt this summer so far. So prepare yourself, hydrate. You know the drill. It's all about the heat dome. It is moving eastward. So places that had the excessive heat over the western in the U.S. getting some relief, uh, minimal, we're, we're really slicing hairs here, but now the heat is going to impact places like St. Louis, uh, the eastern seaboard. If you look at the heat indices, this is what it feels like on your skin as you step outside. Over 100 degrees for the entire Atlantic seaboard, just incredible. Atlanta all the way to the Big Apple today. So that is what we're concerned about. And of course, the reason that I'm here is the water temperatures. Don't forget about the thunderstorms today along the east coast. Could bring a few tornadoes and stronger thunder, uh, wind gusts to the uh, major metropolitans, but it's the water temperatures. We're going to follow up with the coral reef experts today, find out if this coral bleaching is underway, find out what is happening. Uh, it is a major environmental story for this area. It has impacts far reaching, not only protecting our coastlines from hurricanes, but also the tourism industry in Florida. Yeah, to say the least. tourism, America. fishing, okay. broad environmental and economic impacts. Derek, appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Tributes pouring in this morning for Irish singer Sinead O'Connor after her family announced yesterday that she had died at the age of 56. Ireland's public broadcaster RTE released a statement from her family yesterday. They said they are devastated. O'Connor rose to fame with her cover of Prince's Nothing Compares to You. So many stars reacting to her death. Singer Melissa Etheridge called it a tragedy and added that O'Connor was haunted all her life. REM frontman Michael Stipe said there are no words. And actress Jamie Lee Curtis remembered her as a warrior and a rebel. But Chloe Malas has been following it all. What a life she led. Indeed. I mean, not just the voice, but the fact that she spoke truth to power. She was not afraid to speak up for what she believed in. Let's go back to that infamous moment 
in, in, in the 90s, I believe in 1992, on Saturday Night Live when she ripped up the photo of Pope John Paul II that you see right there. And she told the New York Times in 2021, it was brilliant. I don't regret it. And so she was speaking out about, you know, the sex abuse in the Catholic Church and these issues long before others. And she faced widespread criticism all over the world. But I also want to talk to you guys about this really tough past year for her. We're all moms. Everybody out there has a loved one, right? Last year, she lost one of her children to suicide. And she spoke about it on Twitter. She talked even recently on a Twitter account that's unverified, but, you know, it appears to be hers saying that she's lost her way, lost the meaning to live. And she was hospitalized after the suicide of her 17-year-old son, Shane, canceled her shows. Um, but on her Facebook page, it appeared that she did want to get back, there, back out there this year, start touring, and that she wanted to reconnect with her fans and that she had sort of found this uh, re-energized uh, part of her life. And also, she had just done a documentary um, with an incredible filmmaker that actually won many awards and debuted this past year. Um, and you guys can actually watch that on Paramount and Hulu and other, other places. And um, they're actually streaming it overseas this weekend. But a really hard year for her. And so we don't know the cause of death or the circumstances right now. But we know based on the statement from her family that they are asking for prayers and that this is a very tragic loss for them right now and that they need privacy. Yeah. And she had talked so openly about her own struggles, um, about the child abuse that she endured, about what she struggled with in terms of mental health. Um, a lot more to get into. We're going to continue to cover this this morning, but just sad, just mm -hmm. sad overall for so many people. Thank Chloe, you. thanks. Yeah. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was just grilled on Capitol Hill for spreading vaccine misinformation. So why is presidential candidate Ron DeSantis now floating the name of RFK Jr. to lead the country's most important health agencies? His reasoning. And a rematch of the 2019 World Cup finale ended in a draw, but what a draw it was. We'll break down the highlights of the U.S. women's national match against the Netherlands with two-time FIFA Women's World Cup champ, champ, champ Julie <laughs> Foudy. U.S. Captain Lindsey Horan scoring a header in the second half of last night's World Cup match against the Netherlands to tie the game. This highly anticipated matchup between defending champs, the U.S. women's national team and the Netherlands, was also a rematch of the 2019 World Cup final. After a little bit of a rocky start, the U.S. rallied in the second half to pull off that tie. Joining us now to take us through some of the highlights, TNT soccer analyst and two-time FIFA Women's World Cup champion, Julie Foudy. Uh, Julie, it's great to see you this morning. Um, I was watching highlights this morning since it was a little past my bedtime. I mean, what what a game, but also it was a little bit of a struggle in the first half, it seems. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of a struggle in the first half, actually. It was very clunky. Um, and we haven't really seen the best of the U.S. team yet in this tournament. And so we saw this in the first half. Typically against better teams, the U.S. does better, but they struggled a little bit in the first half. Came out in that second half and had a brighter start. And as you saw, that goal by Lindsey Horan actually gave him a big lift. 
But overall, it still wasn't a great performance for the United States. And, and they thought coming into this game, they had a win in their first game. So they were sitting on three points. Another win against the Netherlands would have clinched the group for sure and gotten them through. So now they find themselves in a bit more precarious position because they're only sitting on four points with that tie. Do you think this motivates them against, it's Portugal, right, next? Or does it... Yeah, does Portugal it- does the clunkiness affect them and make them more clunky? <laughs> Hopefully no. Hopefully <laughs> they, they come out and, uh, and actually have a really good performance against Portugal. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, is they know they, they really, um, they, they, they have to win or tie. If they lose against Portugal, they are out of it. Portugal sits at three points. The U S is at four points. And so, it's in their hands still, of course, but they've got to get a win or a draw out of it. And so, you know, they were hoping they came into this last game in probably a bit better position. So I think they'll be a dis- bit disappointed in that because they yeah. did have a lot of good in the second half against the Dutch. Um, and they just couldn't get that three points. But it's still in their hands. There's still a lot to be optimistic about because they could get through easily against Portugal. This is their first tournament at a, a first time at a World Cup. So. I'm, I'm not going all negative on the U.S. No, no, no. no. Well, we're definitely looking glass half full here. Definitely not done yet. But yeah. when you, you know, as you mentioned, there are a lot of players on this team for whom this is their first World Cup. Yeah. What do you think those conversations are, especially from some of the more seasoned players as they move toward that next match? Yeah, well, you have 14 players on this roster of 23 who are in their first World Cup. But you also have the likes of Megan Rapino, who didn't see time on the field today, and a Kelly O'Hara um, and an Alex Morgan who played today. So you do have a lot of good veteran players. You know, those three alone have played in four World Cups. This is their fourth World Cup. So they are having a lot of conversations right now saying, hey, look, not the performance we wanted, but we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. They're talking, you know, in the locker room and in the hallways and in hotel rooms about the fact that this is what this U.S. team does. They're resilient. They come back. They fight. And so I think you will see a very resilient fighting group in this last match against Portugal because they know they got to get a result. I put the smart money on him. Julie, thank you very much. Hunter Biden's plea deal now on hold. Does it also provide another opening for Republican lawmakers who slammed the agreement? We're going to take a look at that, how it's playing politically. Scott Jennings and John Avlon here in the studio with us next. So this morning, something that almost no one expected. 24 hours ago, Hunter Biden does not have a plea deal, is still under active investigation, and is no closer to putting his legal woes in the rearview mirror. And while his legal team scrambles to find a fix, after yesterday's hearing essentially fell apart, Republicans are pouncing. It is giving the party a new reason to keep pressing forward with their investigations, crying foul over an alleged sweetheart deal. Listen to this. I think it's all driven by the whistleblowers and, that, and just how credible those individuals are and the fact that their testimony has not wavered. It collapsed because it was a sweetheart deal from a family that has been protected. Hunter Biden is getting a sweetheart deal that no other American who wasn't rich and had a father as the president would ever get, ever. If you believe the whistleblowers and what they're saying, no, this was a sweetheart deal. It was corrupt in terms of how it was handled. Just a point of factor, one of those whistleblowers is going to join us mm-hmm. in this program later. Uh, in court, nothing came up about the whistleblower allegations. In fact, all three parties, the judge, the prosecutors, and the defense counsel, all agreed that this judge and this court and this hearing had no 
say or power to reinvestigate given those given those allegations by the whistleblowers. Okay, with us to discuss what we know from this court hearing, CNN senior political analyst Sean Avalon, CNN political commentator Scott Jennings. He worked on several campaigns for Mitch McConnell. He spoke with the minority leader yesterday after he froze at the podium. We're going to talk to him about that in a moment. But first, to Hunter Biden. Jim Jordan, Lindsey Graham, they know, they know what happened in court. They know that the whistleblower's allegations were not at all part of why this fell apart. But they're saying it anyways. Well, I mean, I, I think fundamentally Republicans believe that there's so much more there with Hunter Biden that this plea agreement, as it had been reported, was simply not sufficient. And that's fine, but that's not why the judge questioned it. Sure, and, and, but but to them, I mean, look, I mean, they're, they're not here to they're not here to give you a legal analysis. They're here to give you the, the best political spin on this, and the, hmm. and the, and the political uh, spin for them is true. Hunter Biden was involved in a lot of issues regarding foreign entities. A lot of money changed hands. Uh, there's been a lot of allegations about who knew what, why were they getting this money, foreign entanglements. And so for them to continue to talk about this, um, they think there's a direct link to Joe Biden. And so I, I suspect it's going to be an ongoing topic for the Republicans. I'm glad the judge, as a Republican, stood up for uh, herself on this and didn't get steamrolled. This foreign uh, lobbying issue. It's a real issue. It's a real criminal law. And uh, there are legitimate questions about whether he skirted that one as long along with the tax laws he evaded. So it was also clear yesterday that this is still an ongoing investigation, which is part of why yeah. this plea agreement right. fell apart. Um, you know, our good friend Shan Wu pointing out today, there was sort of a little win in this pause for both sides. Yes, Republicans can continue to talk, can continue to talk about it. But the fact, too, that this is an ongoing investigation, that may actually make it a little harder in some cases for Republicans to get some of the information yeah. that they're after. That, that may indeed be the case, but I think it, it really illustrates the fundamental sort of uh, mislawyering that occurred, which is that the Hunter Biden defense team thought everything was going to be covered uh, with, with very little basis. And, and, and this, you know, th this plea agreement essentially was about taxes and guns, and they thought it would cover everything. And there was very little reason for them to suggest, uh, to believe that, especially given that, as you pointed out earlier, you know, the, the David Weiss, the, the, uh, the prosecutor appointed by the Trump administration originally, uh, said that there was an ongoing investigation. They apparently hadn't clarified that. So this is a bit of a pause. Republicans will look for political gain. There may very well be uh, reasons to investigate uh, the larger questions of, of money further. Uh, but this was a, a fundamental figure of lawyering with a lot of political implications. But don't expect Republicans to uh, have fidelity to the facts of the case over the, the narrative they're trying to pursue and the investigations that probably should occur. Well, they would say that the facts of the case haven't been fully given to the public. I mean, they, they Republicans on Capitol Hill think there's a lot of information here that's being hidden from the public. It's why they had the whistleblowers come to Congress. I heard you say you're going to interview yeah, one. I think Joseph Ziegler will be here in the 8 a.m. hour. I think that's great. Uh, and so for as long as this has been going on, Republicans have believed a lot of things are being are being hidden uh, from the public to protect Joe Biden. And so more facts are coming out. And uh, that's a good thing. Transparency here for Joe Biden. He's the president. It's deserved. Can <laughs> I really want to, you talked to yes. Mitch McConnell yesterday. Yeah. Everyone is worried because he froze for 23 seconds at the podium. And this comes after several falls and a concussion. Is he okay? He's okay. I talked to him uh, yesterday evening. Um, you know, after he had his moment at the podium, he went back to the press conference and answered several yes. questions. Uh, he was telling me about his schedule yesterday. After the press conference, he met with Kevin McCarthy. Then he had several meetings. Uh -huh. Then he called me. Then he went and made a speech at a dinner. Then late last night, he went down to the floor and they had some votes on uh, NDAA, and he was down there for a while. So he kept up a, he did more yesterday than I did <laughs> after a, after his moment. I've spent a fair amount of time with him. I talked to him 
and communicate with him fairly often. He sounded fine on the phone to me, and he was uh, telling me about all the things he was going to get done this week. So I didn't detect any anything other than normal Mitch McConnell. Nothing in his voice. sounded off to off. No. No. And, and anybody else in his orbit raising concerns to you? Well, look, anytime you see somebody that you care about um, um, have a moment, of course, of course you have concerns. I mean, I've known this man since I was 16 years old and care about him very much. And so, of course, you have concerns. But I had the benefit of actually getting a chance to talk to him and, and hear his voice and listen to him talk about what he was doing with himself over uh, yesterday and over the next few days. And uh, he didn't he didn't sound like somebody who was uh any different to me than I've known him for the last several months. I, and I've spent some time with him since his fall. And um, um, I, he, he sounded like a guy who was very focused on his job. Look, it, it, this is the kind of thing that uh, should be understood by Americans to be well beyond partisan politics. It was mm -hmm. hard to watch. And I think all folks should wish him well uh, and, and, and recover in good health. And I think that's the kind of spirit we need to see more of in our politics. And we heard that from... Chuck Schumer immediately yesterday yeah. as well. Um, thank you both very, very much. We'll continue to follow that. Uh, also happening, uh, some pretty out of the, this world uh, statements being made during a House hearing on UFOs. Biologics came with some of these recoveries, yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human. Non-human. That's what a former U.S. intelligence official said about uh, what the government may know, may have in its possession. A lot of talk about what we call UFOs, the real term, UAPs. We're going to get into all of that just ahead. So what you're about to hear may sound more like it's something from the X-Files. Remember that TV show? But it has nothing to do with Hollywood or TV this is being said on Capitol Hill at a House Oversight Subcommittee uh, hearing, which was held yesterday. Testimony from three former military officials there talking about UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. We may call them UFOs. One of the people who testified is David Grush. He's a former U.S. intelligence official who worked in the Pentagon's task force that's been looking into UAPs. And he claimed under oath that he has been told the government is not only in possession of a non-human spacecraft, but also what he referred to as non-human biologics. Do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. And have you seen any of the bodies? That's something I've, I've not I witnessed myself. In a statement, a Pentagon spokeswoman said the task force has, quote, not discovered any verifiable information to substantiate those claims. Let's bring in Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Rochester, Adam Frank. He's also the author of The Little Book of Aliens, which explores the age-old question of whether we are alone in this universe or not. It's due out in October. Professor, thank you for being here. I, I, I wonder what you make of Grush's testimony. Uh, well... First of all, it's great that people are interested in the stuff I study as a scientist, you know, in terms of life in the universe. But the real question is, does any of what we heard yesterday, from a scientific point of view, point to life in the universe outside of Earth? And the answer is no, in terms of hard data. You know, the Grosch testimony, that, if you look at the history of UFOs, 
this is a very old thing where like even in the 1950s, uh, there was the first UFO study that the government conducted. And the guy, the military uh, commander who was in charge of that, a year later, two years later, after he retired, published a book saying there was a top secret document that said UFOs were aliens. No one's ever found that document after 70 years of trying. And so, like, this is not new of people saying, oh, I've heard from somebody who heard from somebody, but there's never any evidence. It's great that they have these hearings. I think it's great that, you know, we try and get, you know, be below the government, you know, whatever is going on with the government when, when it comes to this. Um, but I think, you know, it's quite possible that in 70 years we're going to be still having hearings and there will still be no spaceship. So as a scientist, my thing is like, show me the spaceship. So you want to see the show me the spaceship, show me the science. We spoke with one of the former Navy fighter pilots um, who testified yesterday. We spoke with him on Tuesday and he said part of his push here, too, is he wants not only greater transparency, but he wants it to be easier for folks to come forward when they do see something. How important is that, that there be yeah. an avenue that does not come with some form of retaliation, which is a fear for many people? Um, you know, I want to distinguish between the Grosch testimony, which says we have alien spaceships in somebody's garage, right? And the pilots, I think the pilots were very courageous for coming forward, because the only way you're ever going to be able to figure out what these things are, and I think it's much more likely it's about national defense than, you know, life on another planet, um, is by having these kinds of open conversations. You know, when science looked at these, when that NASA panel, when it looked at exactly that one you're showing right now, mm -hmm. which when it came out, that video, people were like, oh my God, what is this thing? It's traveling so fast. It turns out you do a little science on it and it turns out to be going at 40 miles an hour, right? So that's a pretty weak alien if that's what that is. Um, but the pilot testimony, I think is so important because when we look at these kinds of events, we find that only 6% are unexplainable, right? The other 94% are explainable. But it's the kind of thing that the pilots talked about yesterday. Those, uh, uh, those kinds of sightings rely on that 6%. And so we've got to do – the only way to solve this is to have open, transparent science, and that's the way we'll figure out what these things are. But it shouldn't detract from what's going on in science right now which is where, you know, with using the James, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, mm -hmm. we're at the verge of really being able to find yeah. life on distant alien planets where you expect alien life to be. Do you think this hearing was beneficial for the American people? Excuse me? I'm do you, sorry. Do I you didn't think hear the that. hearing was beneficial for the American people yesterday? Yeah, I think it's good that people talk about this. There's been so much obfuscation. You know, the whole history of UFOs is is there's some pretty crazy stuff going on with that. And I think it's great that this comes out. I think what's great is for people, like with the NASA panel, for people to see how science works. That's the most important part of this, is for people to understand how science reaches its conclusions. Because, look, science is why airplanes don't fall out of the sky and why your medicines don't kill you. And, um, and so this most important question, people have been arguing about life in the universe for 2,500 years. And, you know, we don't want to believe, we want to know. And yeah. so th this opens up for people understanding how the science works and how we'll reach that conclusion, which will probably be through telescopes, not through looking at the sky. Um, I think it's great because the American public needs to understand how science works so we don't have more science denial. Well, Professor, thank you very much for joining us. Look forward to reading the little book yeah. of aliens. The book in October. Adam Frank, thank okay. you. <laughs> yeah. Ahead, thank one you.
Ahead, what new U.S. intelligence is saying about Ukraine's counteroffensive and the weakness Ukrainian forces have discovered in Russia's defensive lines. And what many economists thought was inevitable, well, it's not looking so certain this morning. But given the resilience of the economy recently, they are no longer forecasting a recession. More on that, plus the Federal Reserve's latest decision on interest rates just ahead. Hunter Biden's plea deal hangs in limbo, raising new questions about where this leaves the president's son and his legal team. The judge raising questions on the gun diversion. She said she wasn't sure it was constitutional. The whole point of plea agreements is to ensure that the defendant's rights are protected. The only thing the judge decided is this is not a deal. Questions about the health of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell after he stopped talking mid-sentence and froze during a news conference. The president called to check on me. I told him I got a sandbag. This is not the first health scare that Mitch McConnell has experienced this year. Time really does matter in terms of preventing this from happening in the future. President Biden will meet with the mayors of Phoenix and San Antonio about the brutal heat as more than 140 million Americans are under heat alerts. This is hell we want heaven. I can't imagine being out for more than 10 minutes. This is gonna be the most extreme heat that we've experienced certainly in recent memory. A bipartisan call for more government transparency on UFOs. I would estimate we're somewhere near 5% reporting. Biologics came with some of these recoveries. Human or non-human biologics? Non-human. We're just going to get to the facts. We should encourage more reporting. The more we understand, the safer we will be. The Dutch have scored! one nothing Netherlands! Ball headed down, tied and won! She did it, all right! I felt the momentum the whole time. We fixed things right away. Proud of the team and their response. You roll up your sleeves, you find your grit, and then you find your goals. USA! USA! Vamos! 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 USA! Morning, everyone. As you can see, there's a lot of news, a lot of soccer. I have to call it football at this point. Excitement. Fever over the women in the World (laughs) Cup. And a totally unexpected event in a federal courthouse yes. That is for sure. So this morning, Hunter Biden's plea deal, well, it's on hold and potentially in jeopardy after really falling apart in that courtroom, a very dramatic court hearing. Wednesday, the federal judge questioning the deal, put it on hold. This is the president's son, of course, had been preparing to plead guilty to tax crimes and also avoid prosecution on a felony gun charge. This hearing was really just a formality. It was supposed to be a quick 30 minutes But instead, it was an hours-long legal drama as prosecutors and Biden's attorneys attempted to salvage that agreement under really direct questioning from the judge. Yeah, that judge called the deal unusual and at one point even asked if it was constitutional. That judge refused to be a, quote, rubber stamp on the agreement. She asked if it gave Hunter Biden broad immunity for other possible crimes, including his business dealings in Ukraine and China. When the prosecutor responded no, Biden's lawyer snapped back that the deal was then null and void. Let's bring in our CNN political correspondent, Sarah Murray. Sarah, how did this happen and where does it go now? Look, this is not the day anyone was expecting to have in court. As you pointed out, Hunter Biden showed up at the Delaware Courthouse, federal court, with his legal team expecting to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax crimes and to strike this deal where he would complete a program to avoid a felony gun charge. But as the judge was kicking the tires of what was in this plea deal, things started to fall apart. And I want to read to you a part of this uh, proposed plea deal that was obtained by Politico. CNN has not verified that it's 
it's the final version, but it gets to one of the issues here, which is the, the scope of the deal. And this proposed agreement says the United States agrees not to criminally prosecute Biden outside of the terms of this agreement for any federal crimes encompassed by the attached statement of facts. This agreement does not provide any protection against prosecution for any future conduct by Biden or by any of his affiliated businesses. So the judge is asking prosecutors, you know, is this an ongoing investigation? And prosecutors say yes. They establish that, you know, they couldn't charge Hunter Biden with other tax crimes because of this plea deal. But she asked, could you potentially charge him with something like a foreign lobbying violation. And prosecutors say, yes, they could. And that's the point where Hunter Biden's lawyers say, you know, if that's the case, this deal is off. So the court took a recess. The prosecutors, the defense team came together, hashed it out, came back in and said, OK, look, we think we do actually have a deal. There's an agreement where prosecutors are not going to come after Hunter Biden for tax offenses over five years, for drug uh, issues, for this firearm offense. And then again, the judge starts asking more questions about this deal, and especially on this gun agreement, she begins to have concerns about the structure of it and whether it's legally sound and ultimately says, I'm not going to accept or reject this deal, but I'm going to put it on hold. I'm going to give both sides 30 days to respond and to give me more answers to some of my questions and concerns. And ultimately, Hunter Biden ends up pleading not guilty as a formality while this is all on hold, guys. And what is the sense there, Sarah, sort of from both sides? Is there is there a feeling that they're going to be able to come to some sort of agreement? I mean, I think they're certainly going to try to answer the judge's questions, assuage her concerns, maybe tweak the structure of the deal if they need to in order to make her feel more comfortable about signing off on it. But look, based on the way things went down yesterday, you can't rule out the possibility that this is the kind of thing that could head towards a trial, which is what's going to happen if they can't actually reach an agreement that the prosecution and the defense can sign off on and that the judge is comfortable with. Sarah Murray, appreciate it. Thank you. Yep, thanks. Well, hanging over yesterday's plea hearing were recent claims from two IRS whistleblowers who helped lead the investigation of Hunter Biden. And they have testified that the Justice Department gave preferential treatment, they believe, to the president's son. Republican Congressman Jim Jordan actually credited the whistleblowers for the collapse of the plea deal yesterday. But that's not what happened in court. The judge, the DOJ, and Hunter Biden's attorneys all agreed that the judge didn't have the power to order prosecutors to redo their probe or consider charging decisions if she thought the investigation was lacking. Still, here's what Jordan said. I think it's all to combine whistleblowers and just how incredible those individuals are. And the fact that their testimony has not been consistent, unlike White House, their story. I want to play for you now what one of those IRS whistleblowers told Congress under oath last week. It appeared to me, based on what I experienced, that the U.S. attorney in Delaware in our investigation was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ officials, as well as other U.S. attorneys. I still think that a special counsel is necessary for this investigation. That was Joseph Ziegler. He joins us now. He was the lead IRS case agent on the Hunter Biden investigation. We should note, he also says he grew up in a conservative household, but now identifies as a Democrat within his words, middle-of-the-road views. We appreciate your time this morning. I appreciate you having me on your show. What is your reaction to the plea deal being put on hold? Yeah, so I think based on um, the judge's reaction and what happened yesterday that um, she acted impartial, she acted independent. Um, I, I think it showed that the prosecution rushed this agreement through 
and mismanaged the situation, and he could have gotten off with a, a, an easy deal. But um, with, the, with the judge and her reaction saying that this is not normal, um, I think it's important that people, people see that, hey, this, th- there's, the, the judicial system is working, and you have someone that, that is looking at what is happening here, and they're seeing that this is not normal and that we have to treat everyone the same. It is possible that they work this out in the next 30 days and that Hunter Biden does plead to two misdemeanors and uh, deferring on a gun charge. That's possible, well, if his attorneys agree that the other things can remain open. Um, You asked for a special counsel in your testimony. Chris Christie, Republican presidential candidate, agrees with you. He said yesterday at this point he thinks we need one. What do you believe a special counsel could do that Trump-appointed U.S. attorney David Weiss can't do? So, and it's clear from David Weiss's most recent letter, he only has ultimate authority in his judicial district, the District of Delaware. So if there are crimes that are occurring, so offshoot investigations, these spinoffs, the ongoing investigation, and if those crimes are venued elsewhere, according to his letter, he only has authority in the District of Delaware, and he was afforded or he was told that he would be given that authority Mm -hmm. to pursue charges outside of there, but there's no letter, there's no document, there's nothing that's, that's there that, that indicates that he has that power to do that. And that should ta- concern people. Joseph, you're talking about the June 7th letter that he wrote to members of Congress. Let me read that in part, the part that you're referring to. I have been granted ultimate authority over this matter, including the responsibility for deciding where, when, and whether to file charges. That's key, where, when, and whether to file charges. And for making decisions necessary to preserve the integrity of the prosecution. What specific avenues of investigation do you want pursued that you believe were prevented? So, again, as far as this investigation goes and a part of our testimony, we did not follow the normal process. We did not follow normal investigative leads that we would normally want to follow as a part of a tax investigation. Tax investigations are are quite complex. We interview a lot of witnesses. You have to follow the money. An example of my testimony was uh, uh, President Joe Biden's sister, Valerie Owens. There was uh, uh, financial transactions. We were not allowed to go and interview that witness. Who so told there's, you not there's to? Just, uh, I, so uh, that was handed down from, uh, to us from the, the assigned prosecutors. And I, I, I think from, one thing that came up yesterday from the judge. So that came down from uh, the assigned prosecutor, so either AUSA Leslie Wolf. Uh, Department of Justice Tax Attorney Mark Daly, so the people who were working on our investigation with us. You have questioned whether David Weiss had full authority, and in that part of the letter I read to you, he, he believes, and he said to Congress in this letter, that, that he does. Do you believe that someone stopped David Weiss? So all, all I can go back to is what we stated in our testimony. I, we know that the Department of Justice went to the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office to bring the 2014 and 2015 felony and misdemeanor tax charges there. <clears throat> they said no. We also know that he went to the District of, of California, a President mm-hmm. Biden appointed U.S. Attorney, to, to charge that case, the felony and misdemeanor charges there. He was told no. So all, all along, we're, try, that we're trying to that bring has, these charges in the different venues. That has, just to the response to that has been, that has been contested, that assertion 
that he went elsewhere and was prevented by, by the attorney general. You know, this case, as you well know, because you were lead on it, uh, for two years, this, this investigation went on under the Trump administration. And Bill Barr, in December of 2020, said this about it. He said, I think to the extent there's an investigation, I think it's being handled responsibly and professionally. He went on to say that he sees no reason to appoint a special counsel. Why was this not charged in those two years? And do you disagree with what Bill Barr asserted there? Yeah, so I don't know what what, what basis for that statement, and I'm not going to speculate as to why. What I can tell you is that after D.C. said no, us agents on the team, including the FBI, we were trying to figure out internally how to bring on a special counsel. We already saw that there was improper things being done. And as law enforcement officers, we make an oath to the office to do the right thing. I think that's so important, regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of what your political beliefs are. We have to be impartial and we have to be fair to taxpayers, people that are paying their fair share of taxes. And in this case, we wanted, we thought all along that that David Weiss was going to do the right thing for the right Mm -hmm. reasons. I can recall saying that so many times. But when he only charged two misdemeanor counts, and did not charge the felony when the felony yeah. charges were recommended for approval, That I'm sorry, we're not treating I all taxpayers the same. Two more quick questions for you. Um, and look, it takes a lot of guts. I just want to note this for our audience. It takes a lot of guts. I know you've said you're worried that your job was on the line when you came out here publicly to testify. Two final questions for you. One is, how do you know David Weiss and his team aren't doing that now? Clearly, the investigation is still ongoing. So uh, you are correct. I was removed from the team May 15th. I wasn't provided with a reason why. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I do not know that answer. But what, I, what I'm asking for is we need to have someone with independent authority, okay. with full authority, that special counsel authority, that can charge that in venues outside of the District of Delaware. The, the one thing I would just say about special counsel, so people understand the difference here, is David Weiss, as a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, has the authority to follow leads where they will take him and his team. A special counsel, the way, the way that that operates, they have to operate within sort of the four corners of what an attorney general sets for them. And if they want to expand the investigation, they have to go back to the AG, get permission to do that and keep going. So there is the argument to be made that actually David Weiss has more independence here. So the, the fact that, he, that, that it's being stated that he has more independence, I would go to two President Biden U.S. attorneys both saying no to bringing charges in their districts and the charges not being brought. Like, like, like we said, it's in Department of Justice tax manual. It's mm-hmm. in their tax manual that you have to charge the felony with the misdemeanor. You have taxpayers who are right now in New England that were charged, these are fishermen, it's a fisherman case. They were charged with misdemeanor and felony tax charges for failing to file tax returns. I'm sure that those people would like the same agreement that, that, that Hunter got in this situation. And that's my argument is we have to treat people the same in our investigations and how we move forward those investigations. Okay. And to, to the point that you're making, the allegation that they were blocked by other U.S. attorneys that has been contested by their office. Joseph, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Ellie Honig is back with us. Takeaway? Yeah, really interesting. A couple quick things. First of all, 
what the judge said yesterday really doesn't touch either way, pro or con, on what Special Agent Ziegler said. The judge did not say this is a sweetheart deal that I can't countenance. The judge said the parties haven't agreed on what this deal is. I think that needs to be cleared. I think the special agent made a really interesting comment here. You asked him, what specific avenues did you want to follow up on that you were prevented? And he gave you an example. Yeah. He said the connection to Valerie Owens. David Weiss has to answer that. He also Why said was that who cut blocked off? him. Yes, exactly. He said the, the, the line, what we call the line prosecutors. That's a really important question. David Weiss has not addressed that in his letters yet. If and when he testifies, that to me is a really important issue. What about on special counsel? I think we're going to, yeah. I ask because I think we're going to hear that a lot more. And I sort of was trying to explain that a special counsel isn't always, um, doesn't always give, give yeah. more leeway. There's nothing all that special about special counsel. It's essentially the same thing as a U.S. attorney like David Weiss is. In some respects, there's more independence from the attorney general. But in other respects that you pointed out, and a U.S. attorney actually has more freedom to explore those avenues. The question, which I think Special Agent Ziegler just amply raised, is were those avenues followed? Yeah. yeah. And are they being followed now? Yeah. Question. Right. Thank you. Very interesting. Great interview. Uh, new this morning, we've learned that Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin is actually in St. Petersburg. Hey, you know who else is there right now? Vladimir Putin. Yeah, the man that Prigozhin, of course, tried to depose in an armed rebellion just last month. Prigozhin was spotted, you see here, meeting with an African dignitary. This is on the sidelines of the Russia-Africa summit. It's also the first time Prigozhin has been seen in public inside Russia since he led that armed mutiny. In fact, he's only been seen in public uh, once before July 19th when he was seemingly inside Belarus. Ukraine is ramping up its counteroffensive. A military official says uh, they're now committing the main bulk of forces to that counteroffensive. Ukrainian forces, though, still have combat power in reserve. This after nearly two months of what's been described by many as slow progress. CNN's Natasha Bertrand joining us live from the Pentagon with more this morning. So uh, progress slow. What does that actually mean in terms of the progress that, that has been made, Natasha? Yeah, Erica, this is really what U.S. and Western officials had been waiting for. They had been waiting for the Ukrainians to finally commit all of these reserve forces, many of whom are trained in that NATO and U.S. combined arms uh, warfare, uh, to finally take part in this counteroffensive. Now, essentially what this means is that the Ukrainians have managed to break through some of those Russian defensive lines and uh, some of those minefields, those very extensive minefields that the Russians kind of left behind as they retreated in certain areas. And now they are taking advantage of the fact that the Russian that they have been able to break through those lines and they are going to put more troops essentially in so that they can try to make even more progress. And this is really significant because, again, this is what the U.S. had been hoping that the Ukrainians would do at this point. They were operating essentially under uh, serious constraints with regard to the very heavy minefields that the Russians had left behind. And so they simply couldn't commit all of those reserve forces until they found an area and kind of a a, a narrow spot where they could punch through those lines and then essentially take advantage of the fact that they have been able to progress a little bit. This is something that Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley said earlier this month was something uh, that the, the U.S. understood. They understood why the Ukrainians had not been able to commit more reserve forces up until this point. And he said that while the uh, Russians had a very extensive security zone in depth, essentially all of those defensive positions, the Ukrainians had not yet committed the combat power 
necessary to break through. Well, now it seems that they have committed the main bulk of these forces for this counteroffensive, Erica. I also wanted to ask you about President Biden deciding that he would allow the U.S. to cooperate with the International Criminal Court's investigation of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. This is really, really important because the U.S. has, you know, sort of, I don't want to say fought against that. I think those words are too strong, too strong, but there has been a push for it and there's been pushback. So just put that in context for us, if you would. Extremely significant, actually a historic shift. Now the U.S. is saying that they are going to provide uh, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, with the evidence that the U.S. has obtained of Russian war crimes uh, as part of the ICC's investigation into that in Ukraine. Now, this is significant because it marks the first time that the U.S. is going to help the International Criminal Court try to prosecute a country that is not actually a member of the ICC itself. Recall the U.S. is not a member of the court either. And so the concern by the Pentagon, particularly, was always that helping the court prosecute uh, this ki- these kinds of war crimes against the Russians might set a precedent whereby the court could then try to go after, say, American troops for alleged war crimes carried out in Iraq. That precedent being set for prosecuting a, a country and people inside a country that are not actually a, a party to the court. Well, now the U.S. says, and according to our sources, President Biden has decided that this is simply too important and that the U.S. has really valuable evidence that they believe could uh, help the court uh, hold uh, Russian war criminals accountable, Erica. Yeah, really significant. And as you point out, historic. Natasha, appreciate it. Thank you. So this morning, there are really serious questions and concerns about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell after he froze mid-sentence during a news conference. And a string of... McConnell stood there silent for 23 seconds before he was led away and knew overnight we're learning from sources he has fallen multiple times this year. There's also new information this morning about LeBron James' son, Bronny. He, of course, collapsed, suffered cardiac arrest during basketball practice earlier this week. Dr. Sanjay Gupta standing by. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. CNN reporting this morning on Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He has fallen more times this year than we previously knew about. This reporting comes as the 81-year-old Republican insists he's fine. This is after he froze mid-sentence for 23 seconds yesterday. We're on a path to finishing the NDA uh, this week. It's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of... This is just the latest incident this year for Leader McConnell. Sources telling CNN in February he tripped and fell in Helsinki while getting out of the car on a snowy day. He was there to meet with the Finnish president. Uh, That was just days before a fall in March. That one occurred at D.C.'s Waldorf Astoria Hotel. He slammed his head, suffering a concussion and breaking ribs. Then during a press conference in June, McConnell had trouble hearing questions from reporters, even though the senators next to him could hear very clearly. 
Earlier this month, he tripped and fell at Reagan National Airport while getting off a plane. And yesterday, as you saw, he abruptly stopped speaking mid-sentence at the podium. Joining us now, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So, Sanjay, when you when we see this moment play out, Scott Jennings was with us earlier. Yeah. He said he spoke uh, with Mitch McConnell last night, that he sounded good. He mm. didn't notice anything different. He has seen him since that concussion. But what struck me was the concern that we saw immediately, and rightfully so, and the number of people I saw saying he should go see a doctor right away. When you see this moment, what sticks out to you? It, it was concerning, there's no question. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a trauma neurosurgeon, that's my background, so I'm used to looking, uh, seeing patients with neurological events, and something clearly happened. I think anybody could see that. Um, I, I think his doctors may even have reviewed that video and uh, you know, come to their own conclusions based on his medical history. But if you just look at, you know, it's, it's maybe hard to tell the timeline on that, but it was right, right before two o'clock yesterday when this happened. And it was about 23 seconds uh, where he, he sent, essentially was speechless uh, and, and staring straight ahead and uh, before someone asked him if he was okay, 32 seconds before he was led away from the podium. This sort of timing matters. Um, we know that Manu asked him a question about 12 minutes later and he said he was fine. So whatever it was, uh, he recovered pretty quickly from it. And, you know, common things being common, you know, someone could be very dehydrated, they could have a medical uh, medicine interaction of some sort, they may be feeling under the weather, but you have to rule out more serious things, which is why, you know, there's concern. Was it a mini seizure of some sort? That can sometimes be associated after a brain injury, which is that concussion that he had back in March. Um, or could it have been a mini stroke, something known as a TIA? Hoping it's not those things, but the reason you get it checked out early is because you want to try and prevent it from happening again. Could it be related to what we now know are multiple falls? I mean, most recently in March, he was treated for a concussion at the hospital. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's quite possible. And remember, it was even back in 2019 that he had a fall and he fractured his shoulder. So he's had many of these falls. Uh, so, and he had polio as a child. So, you know, he's had difficulty walking. So the falls in and of themselves concerning, but you're right, that March fall where he had a concussion, uh, needed care for quite some time. That was, you know, one of those things, again, from a neuro standpoint, you look at and say, that was a brain injury. <laughs> Are there consequences or, or impact from that brain injury even months later, such as a mini seizure? Um, again, he, he just needs to get it checked out. Mm -hmm. And he may have been seeing his doctors all along. They, they may not have been as surprised by that yesterday based on what they know, but he needs to get that checked out. Um, Sanjay, I also wanted to get your take. Uh, we're waiting for more updates on Bronnie James. Of course, he suffered a cardiac arrest on Monday. But we have learned since then that he had a cardiac screening several months ago that came back normal. Um, is there anything that we that we can glean from that? Yeah, so first of all, this is interesting. As folks told me about the screening test that Bronny James had as a prospective player. Um, these types of screening tests typically aren't done at someone his age, but he did have what's known as a transthoracic echocardiogram of his heart. And, a, and an EKG, uh, what's called a screening EKG. And I can just show you, you know, when, you, when you're looking at the heart, you put a ultrasound on the chest, it's non-invasive. You're looking to see if there's any anatomical problems with the heart, if there's abnormalities in some of the big blood vessels of the heart. Um, and it, we heard that was normal. Also that snapshot, that screening EKG, we were told was normal as well. Um, 
so that's that's good news. You know, that in combination with the fact that he was in the ICU for a very short time, which indicates that the doctors thought he was stable and that his heart function was normal, another good sign. They still need to sort of figure out what happened here. And um, one of the things they do is they put a EKG that can monitor his heart rhythm over a long period of time. It's something known as a Holter monitor. And, and that's because the snapshot may not catch something, but if you leave the monitor on over 24 or 48 hours, you may see something that's surprising that you know, Bronny himself may not have known about. Hmm. So that's likely what's happening now. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, always good to have you. Thank you. You too, thank you. So a question for the Fed, just how exactly have Barbie <laughs> and Taylor Swift impacted the economy? I was laughing at it too, turns out. But... Well, the ladies may be helping out here and you're welcome. <laughs> totally. The staff now has uh, a noticeable slowdown in growth starting la uh, later this year in the forecast, but given the resilience of the economy recently, they are no longer forecasting a recession. No longer forecasting a recession. You hear it there from Fed Reserve Chair Jerome Powell in terms of what the central bank is now predicting. In just about an hour from now, the Commerce Department is set to release new GDP numbers. Analysts say they believe the economy grew more than expected between April and June. CNN Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans is here. Uh, so what else did we hear? From Chairman Powell, you're saying good morning. I mean, no longer forecasting a recession. That's a the big Fed deal. staff, I mean, the R word was recession for so long. Now the R word is resilient. And the Fed chief might get his so-called soft landing after all. I mean, you had 11 rate hikes in a row. And the Fed did suggest, Fed chief did suggest they could have another one in September, depending on, on what the data uh, show. But the economy is moderately, growing moderately. The job market is still strong. Inflation is still too high. So uh, interest rates, the cost to borrow money is going up. But so is the interest you're getting on the money in your savings accounts mm. and CDs. That's where we are in terms of uh, interest rates right now. Something you may not have expected to come up at a Fed uh, meeting and a press <laughs> conference is Jerome Powell, Barbie and Taylor Swift. But they did. Yeah. Gina Smilek asked him uh, from The New York Times, asked him very specifically, uh, when you look at Taylor Swift concerts and you look at the Barbie movie and some of these things that are uh, happening in, in the public sphere, that are showing the consumer will spend their money. Is that a good thing for the economy? Is it a bad thing for the economy? And the Fed chief noted that the consumer has been quite resilient. But longer term on the margin, if we're too strong here, that means the Fed has to keep raising interest rates. So it's a double-edged sword. Barbie and Taylor Swift are a double-edged sword. But They're, there was, I mean, and we have talked about, there's the Beyonce effect in Sweden, I yes, think it was. Yeah, but also, absolutely. I mean, there were good numbers for hotels in May in Philadelphia when Taylor Swift was there. Yeah, no, and the Beyonce effect is being felt all over the place, quite so frankly, in, yeah. in, in, in restaurants, hotel rooms, hair salons, wherever there is a big event that people want to go to, people will spend their money. We call, we're calling it funflation. She's here in fun New York. Funflation. Funflation. She's in New York, Beyonce, this yeah. weekend. Yep. Sienna really wants to go. I was like, you need... Maybe. I really want to go. I want... I, I told her, I was like, Mama <laughs> wants to go. Yeah, Sienna, that ticket's mine. Funflation. <laughs> Christine, thank you. Thank nice you. to see you guys. Uh, new overnight, an emergency alert declared for the nation's largest power grid system. This has more than 140 million Americans are under heat alerts. Plus. We'll remember the voice and the fearlessness of international pop star Sinead O'Connor.
Irish pop star Sinead O'Connor, who became well-known for both her music and her personal struggles and her, her fearlessness, right? She has died, according to Irish media. She was 56. A statement from her family reads, it is with great sadness that we announce the passing of our beloved Sinead. Her family and friends are devastated and have requested privacy at this very difficult time. No cause of death immediately available. London police said moments ago they're not treating the death as suspicious. Joining us now, clinical psychologist Dr. Rebecca Berry and contributing editor at Rolling Stone, Anthony DeCurtis. Good morning to you both. Appreciate it. Let's begin with you, Anthony. And just remember the life, the voice, the fearlessness, that moment on SNL that no one will ever forget. Of course. With the photo of the Pope. Well, you know, I mean, Sinead was just a, an incredible kind of cataclysmic talent. You know, uh, from her first record, which actually I reviewed in Rolling Stone, mm. I mean, I, I sort of announced her as somebody that was going to be extremely important. Uh, you know, I didn't really understand the ways in which she would ultimately be important, you know. But, uh, you know, there was a kind of fearlessness about her that you've mentioned, um, a willingness to kind of defy any kind of expectation. And, uh, you know, that worked extremely well, and I think it's had a huge impact, uh, particularly on younger female artists who look up to her. Um, you know, from a, certainly from a commercial standpoint, it, you know, essentially destroyed her career. But, uh, you know, those are the kind of complexities, I think, that, that Sinead was dealing with her entire life. In terms of those complexities, Doctor, she had talked a lot and wrote about what she struggled with. She talked about abuse as a child. She talked about that lingering trauma for her and how it influenced her life. Speaking out about it so publicly, that had its own power. Mm -hmm. She, in many ways, was an advocate um, for mental health issues and certainly, I believe, was attempting to break down the stigmatization around mental health by being so public about her own struggles. We talked about last hour uh, with our correspondent, Chloe Malas, that she had a child who she had lost last year at the age of 17. This also comes in a moment when so many more people, thank goodness, are speaking out mm -hmm. about their mental health issues and the power of that coming from someone like her. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that in seeing Sinead be so vocal about her struggles and her history of childhood trauma, really abuse, um, uh, uh, you know, the hope is that it can really open the door to other individuals, including youth, to also seek help and support for what they're going through and, f and really learn ways to manage some of the difficult pain and distress that they may be having. Yeah. But you were talking about... Um, what she contributed, right? It was tough to know with that first review what she would ultimately become, who she would become, what she would yep. mean to so many people. But I know you've also noted that some of those struggles, some of her very public struggles, in some ways also hindered her efforts to really be an advocate. Uh, absolutely. I think that there was um, a kind of a way in which her, I think, emotional and psychological difficulties became somehow really intertwined with her kind of social and political views and it became just easy for people to dismiss her, you know? And I think that was uh, sad. I mean, because, I mean, I think that now, certainly we could see, uh, you know, all of the things that she talked about with child abuse, certainly, I mean, it's a much bigger issue now. People are much more aware of it. And, you know, there are elements of that, but, you know, when she tore up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, um, that, that's all that people talked about. 
you know, and that was, I mean, that was a big problem for her. Now, you could say, well, that's what you do if you're a punk or you're a radical or you're whatever, you, you, you just kind of upset the apple cart. But if you, you think about, you know, your protest as uh, hoping to bring people over to your side, um, I mean, I don't think Sinead really managed to do that. I was wondering if some of that may have softened, though, in later years as more people were speaking out about some of their struggles and maybe how that played in. And it'd be interesting to An see. An action like that today would be perceived very differently. Yeah, that's right. the time. Without a doubt. It wasn't, it wasn't the time to receive that. It wasn't the way to, to, for her to get the support. But certainly, as we know about the conditions from which she did suffer, mm. there was a lot of complex things happening for her um, and the distress that she was feeling. Yeah. Doctor, thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, Oppenheimer is scoring big at the box office, of course. It tells the story of the man behind the atomic bomb. Behind the scenes, though, there are also generations of families who have suffered incredible health issues as a result of those nuclear tests. And the fight continues for them. Just ahead, we'll speak with a congresswoman who is helping to lead that charge. But first, shark sightings have been forcing Cape Cod officials to shut down beaches throughout this summer just as tourists flock to the popular Massachusetts vacation destination. One group, the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, is working to keep tourists and sharks safely apart in today's Impact Your World. Hi, I'm Megan Winton. I'm a scientist at the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. My collaborator, Dr. Greg Skomel from the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. What are we doing today, Greg? We are looking for white sharks so that we can identify them and tag them. We've got a spotter plane looking in these shallow areas so we can go up to them. He's got scars on his side. Wow, he's looking right at me. So over the years, we've tagged over 300 of these animals using a variety of techniques, from acoustic tags, satellite link tags, to camera tags, you name it. Uh, using drone technology, also we are observing the behavior of white sharks close to shore. Do you want to radio in? It's getting close. About 300 feet, angling in. Three, Steve, we're gonna close the public beach. So whenever we're out on the water, or we're flying the drones from the beaches, we're always reporting those sightings through the Sharktivity app. Our real-time receivers are also integrated into the app, so anytime a tag shark swims past one of those buoys, that information gets pushed to Sharktivity immediately. People can also report their shark sightings through this as well. Ultimately, we're looking for patterns of movement that will tell us when and where white sharks are most likely to be so we can inform the public and enhance public safety. And the ultimate goal is to, is to coexist with this species. To learn more about organizations helping with shark conservation, visit cnn.com impact or text FINS to 707070 to donate. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. The blockbuster film Oppenheimer about the father of the atomic bomb is bringing renewed attention to those exposed to the nuclear fallout. A bipartisan group of lawmakers has reintroduced legislation which is designed to expand the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. It's a federal law that was passed in 1990 to help those exposed to radiation while working in uranium mines or who were affected by nuclear testing. But that act notably does not cover 
people living in the vicinity of that 1945 Trinity atomic explosion in New Mexico. In fact, the state wasn't included in the original law. Joining us now is one of the lawmakers behind this push, Representative uh, Teresa Leder Fernandez of New Mexico. It's good to have you with us this morning. I think a lot of people would be surprised that New Mexico wasn't initially included. You know, as you've been working along with your colleagues from New Mexico, again, this is a bipartisan effort to expand the scope of this act. I was struck by what Tina Cordova said. She uh, she has been fighting for this. She's the co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders. She called this an overglorification of the science and the scientists in terms of the film, said that to Axios. Here's what she told our affiliate. Sorry, we may not have the sound. What she said is how disappointed she was that this film had not addressed the broader issue and the fallout of this testing. She said she hadn't heard anything from the film company. We reached out. I'm curious, have you had any discussions with Universal? We have reached out to Universal because as we tell this story about the brilliance of Oppenheimer, the destruction that was caused by this atomic bomb, we need to remember the people who were affected right under the area of the bomb, under that radiation cloud that continued for miles. There were probably 500,000 people who had direct effects from the testing of the very first atomic bomb. How could they then not be included in this act from the 1990s? I have never received a good answer to that, but my job and the job of Senator Lujan and our bipartisan group of senators and congresspeople is to bring attention to that and to try to get past an amendment which would include New Mexico as well as some other counties in Utah and Arizona that were clearly mm-hmm. under the, uh, were downwinders, as we call them, were downwinders from these atomic tests. There were a hundred Uh, above-ground atomic tests in the United States and uh, the world. It is remarkable. I think, too, the scope of the exposure. I was surprised at the scope of the exposure. I know you've said you believe the federal government knowingly poisoned people living downwind of the Trinity test site, also predominantly Navajo uranium mines for decades. I was struck by an op-ed from the president of the Navajo Nation in time this week ahead of the movie who said children played in the contaminated water while livestock drank from radioactive aquifers. What came next? Cancers, miscarriages, mysterious illnesses is a direct consequence of America's race for nuclear hegemony. It's an accomplishment built on top of the bodies of Navajo men, women, and children. The lived experience of nuclear weapons development in the United States. The scope of the damage is so broad, and I know you've dealt with it directly. Yes, well, uh, my family was in the downwind area because my grandmother lived within, you know, we believe a a good 150 miles were severely affected. She lived there. She died early from uh, leukemia. Um, Two people in my immediate family, lung cancer, non-smokers. But I think it's not just my family. It's the fact that there were children who were playing with the atomic dust that was falling. They thought it was like snow in summer. Imagine that's, that ash is falling on chickens on the ground in the water where people were getting their drinking water from, the water for their livestock. And we have never acknowledged it or compensated these victims. There was a sacrifice that New Mexicans made. What would it change to add New Mexico and the counties in those other states that you mentioned to be covered by this act? 
Uh, well, my act actually does make that change. It adds New Mexico. It also makes sure that we add the uranium miners who worked in the mines after 1971. We must include all of those workers who actually sacrificed uh, for the United States national defense. And the RICA, we call it RICA, it actually acknowledges that we should be covering these, that we should take responsibility for those who lost their lives or suffer from cancer. Why they left out New Mexico? No idea, no sense, but let's get it in now. Now's the time to address the harms to New Mexicans and Nevadans, you know, mm -hmm. people in Arizona as well. Um, we only have a couple seconds left. Are you confident that you can get this through? With, with uh, we, we are telling the story to the world so that we can get it through. I think we start with uh, making sure people know the story. And once they know the injustice, my hope is that we do indeed act. There will be a vote in the Senate today on an amendment to the NDAA. Uh, we will see how that goes. Congresswoman Teresa Ledger-Fernandez, really appreciate joining us this morning. Thank you. Poppy? Erica, thank you. New reporting on Mitch McConnell after he froze mid-sentence for 23 seconds yesterday. What we're now learning about several previously unreported falls. A no plea deal for Hunter Biden after yesterday's hearing went sideways. We're going to break down what happened there and where the plea deal goes from here. Morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour, 8 a.m. here on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out west. We're glad you're with us. And what a day in court, in federal yeah. court yesterday. <laughs> I have Erica Hill by my side. Thank you for being here. Good to be with you. A bit of an unexpected day in court. That's for sure. Hunter Biden's plea deal, that's what we're talking about, fell apart right before he was set to plead guilty. What comes next for the investigation and potential charges against the president's son? And how will this play into the race for the White House? We will ask the Republican governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, in minutes. New reporting on Mitch McConnell this morning after he froze for 23 seconds in front of reporters. What President Biden said to him afterward and the previously unreported falls that we are now learning about. The U.S. women's soccer team fighting back in a one-to-one -one draw against the Netherlands as they battle for a third straight World Cup title. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Here is where we begin this hour. This morning, Hunter Biden's plea deal in serious jeopardy after it fell apart at the last minute during this really dramatic and unexpected court hearing yesterday. In a stunning twist, the federal judge put their deal on hold right as the president's son was getting ready to plead guilty to tax crimes and avoid prosecution on a felony gun charge. The judge called this plea agreement unusual, and she also questioned if it was even constitutional. She refused to be a rubber stamp and raised questions about whether the deal gives Hunter Biden immunity from prosecution from other possible crimes, including his business dealings in Ukraine and China. Republicans on Capitol Hill are pouncing on the judge's decision. Just last week, the House Oversight Committee brought in two IRS whistleblowers who worked on the case, who testified Hunter Biden received, in their view, special treatment. One of those whistleblowers uh, joined Poppy earlier this morning to react to the judge's decision. That the prosecution rushed this agreement through and mismanaged the situation, and he could have gotten off with a, a, an easy deal. The judicial system is working, and you have someone that that is looking at what is happening here, and they're seeing that this is not normal, and that we have to treat everyone the same. 
Let's turn now to our CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. He's also former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. You were on the air trying to make sense of what was <laughs> happening in real time during this hearing yesterday. What happens now? Well, Pop, this was not your average plea deal. This was not your average plea hearing. They went from we have a deal to we don't have a deal to we do have a deal to we don't have a deal. Let's sort of talk about what's next. Let's yeah. start with what's next. Option one is they can try to get together. The judge has given them 30 days. She said, get back to me. I need some legal briefing on you. But if they can get together on a deal where they agree on everything, then they can go in and Hunter Biden can take a plea. Which again. ostensibly could still be on two misdemeanors. It could be very similar to what the deal was supposed to be. They just have to iron out the details. The details really matter yeah. here. If they cannot do that, option two is it will be a trial. That is very risky for Hunter Biden. That will be on the tax charges. That could be on the gun charge could be on other things. And if he goes to trial, there's a real risk if he's convicted of prison time. So Hunter Biden is going to be very incentivized to get that plea deal back together. OK. Politics. Yes. Capitol Hill, Republicans, Jim Jordan and others saying, see, the whistleblowers were right. The judge actually pointed out none of that was considered in yesterday's hearing. Yeah. There's a big difference between the politics and what actually happened in court yesterday. Let's explain actually what did happen in court, because this was really about a failure to come to an agreement, not the politics of it. Now, here's the easy part. The plan was supposed to be Hunter Biden was going to plead guilty to the two tax misdemeanors, and then there was going to be a diversion. They were going to essentially throw out the gun charge. That part was easy. So the question was, though, if Hunter Biden enters this plea deal, what is he going to be covered for in the future? The easy part, the tax, he was not going to be charged for again, the gun, he's covered for that. But the judge said, how about all this other stuff on the periphery around tax in the gun. Can he be charged, for example, if there's a Foreign Agent Registration Act, a foreign lobbying violation? Hunter Biden's team said, yes, he is covered for that. DOJ said, no. oh, no, he's not. And at that point, the judge said, you do not have a deal. The judge did not say this was a sweetheart deal or a harsh deal. She just said simply, you do not have a deal. By the way, Poppy, yeah. they should have seen this coming because back in June, when this news first came out, Hunter Biden's team said, it's my understanding his lawyer said that the five-year investigation into Hunter is resolved. Right. The whole thing's over. DOJ, though, said it's an ongoing investigation. Right. There, if you're sensing some tension there, there is, and that blew up in court yesterday. One of the things that I think is really interesting is the, the question of where, where does this go now in terms of yeah. the tie between the politics and keeping the politics out of it, yeah. out of the court proceedings, and the court proceedings playing into where the politics are going. Yeah. So the whistleblower, IRS Special Agent yeah. Ziegler, who you talked to last hour, he has said publicly, and he reiterated to you just now, that in his view, the U.S. attorney was constantly limited. Now, David Weiss has said, no, he was not. He said he had ultimate authority over this matter. I think there's three big questions that linger over the politics okay. of this. Why did it take five years, about half that time under the Trump administration, half that time under Biden? Did Weiss, in fact, have full authority? They differ on that, and then were there investigative avenues cut off? Special Agent Ziegler just answered that question in his interview with you. He said specifically, yes. we wanted to look at the money trail to another Biden relative, to Valerie Biden, and we were prevented from doing that. And I think Congress is going to be very interested he in that. He also named in our interview, I think for the first time, others at the agency who he says stood in his way of doing that. Yeah. So a lot of news made in that interview, and I think will play into the ongoing political questions around this. Final question. Sure. Who could answer this question? Well, there may be a difference of opinion. David Weiss has said, yes, I did have full unfettered authority. But beyond Weiss. Garland. Garland perhaps. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, those, that who would be the person who Who has said he did. Best. 
Merrick Garland has agreed with David okay. Weiss. Okay. Ellie, thank you right, very much. Erica. All right, so Ellie, stick around. We're also going to bring in now a retired uh, U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York, Shira Scheinland. She's also a fellow at the College of Commercial Arbitrators. It's good to have you with us this morning, Judge. So as we look at how all of this played out, the judge yesterday was very clear she was not going to be a rubber stamp. Is it surprising to you, though, how quickly this deal seemed to fall apart and just how far apart the two sides were when they came into that courtroom? Yes, it is surprising to me. They seemed not prepared for a judge who questioned parts of this agreement, which was the right thing to do. I think this judge acted completely appropriately. She did not question uh, the deal itself in terms of two misdemeanors and, and the recommendation of probation and things like that, which are quite typical. But she wanted to be sure there was an agreement. So she asked good questions. And what she got was answers that the two sides did not have the same view as to what the immunity would be going forward, which Ellie just spoke about. And that's a very big issue, because if there's a prosecution five years from now or two years from now, and one side says, but I was given immunity, and the other side said you, you were not, then that becomes an issue in the next case. So that has to be clarified. And the other thing that upset her was this diversion program. Instead of being prosecuted on the gun charge, the government had agreed that he could go into a diversion for a couple years, and if he behaved and followed the terms of the diversion, there would be no charge. But they said to decide if he violated it, they would come back to her, and she would become the fact finder. And she said, now, wait a minute. That shouldn't be my job. Mm -hmm. That's a prosecutorial decision, and you're turning the court into the executive branch, and I got to think about that. So I thought she raised really important issues, but I think the deal will be salvaged because there was nothing about the deal itself that troubled her other than that they had a different view of what the immunities were and who would be the decider if he failed in the diversion. Judge, I'm so glad you brought that up because this was when she said, I don't even know if this is constitutional. And that got a lot of attention, Ellie. Um, she's talking about a separation of powers issue here. Can you explain that to people better? This was a the constitutionality question was about that specific part. Right. So there's an executive branch of government, which is the what the prosecutor is. The Department of Justice is in the executive branch. But she is the judicial branch. So our country has three different branches, legislative, judicial, and executive. And what she was saying is that belongs in the uh, executive branch. So usually when there's a diversion program, and somebody has to follow certain rules for two years. I think that was the diversion here. I think he couldn't uh, have any alcohol. He couldn't use any drugs. Obviously, no guns. There were terms and conditions. But they didn't want the fact finder to be, to be the executive branch. And the reason I think that the defense team was worried about that is if the next administration was under uh, Republican control, if it was President Trump, they felt that he might not be a fair fact finder, that his Justice Department would be biased, would be politicized. So they wanted the judge to make that decision. But she was troubled. She said, but that's turning me into a potential prosecutor, and I would be in the executive branch. And I can't. I'm in the judicial branch. Yeah. And she's right about that, too. She said she didn't want to get out of her lane. Ellie, really quickly, you know, the judge just said she, she thinks they'll be able to come to some sort of an agreement. Okay. Um, 
Do you, based on your experience, right, as a former prosecutor, do you see anything in the way here? Well, let's look at the incentives here. If Hunter Biden does not come to a plea agreement, he's going to have to go to trial. The risk there is enormous. Mm -hmm. And from DOJ's point of view, all you want to do is reach a fair disposition. The fact that they were willing to go this far with Hunter Biden tells me they are willing to dispose of this case for probation and the diversionary program. So I think it's more likely we do see a revised plea agreement that meets with the judge's approval. Not certain, though, but, but the incentives are really pushing, especially Hunter Biden, that way to protect himself. Ellie Hodig, Judge Shira Scheinlin, appreciate the insight from both of you this morning. Thanks. We have new CNN reporting this morning on Senator Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, of course. We've now learned that he's fallen more times this year than previously known. This reporting comes after a scary moment on camera at a news conference yesterday. The 81-year-old Republican just suddenly froze mid-sentence for 23 seconds. Here is that moment. We're on a path to finishing the NDA uh, this week. It's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of McConnell's fellow senators, they're asking if he was all right, eventually pulling him to the side before he returned to the podium. Could you address what happened here at the start of the press conference? And was it related to your injury from earlier this year where you suffered a concussion? Is that... No, I'm, I'm fine. You're fine? You're fully able to yeah. do your job? And... So this latest incident raising understandable concerns, but we've also learned that it is not the first time there has been concern. Uh, sources telling CNN in February, McConnell tripped and fell in Helsinki while getting out of the car on a snowy day to meet with the Finnish president. Now, that was just days before he fell in March. That incident happened in D.C. at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, and that is when he slammed his head, suffering a concussion and breaking ribs. At a news conference in June, he had trouble hearing questions from reporters, uh, despite the fact that those next to him could hear clearly. Take a look. What are your concerns as it relates to Repeat that again. On, on AI, are you concerned at all about artificial intelligence? And, and what are your concerns related to that? How should Congress address it? What is my concern about artificial, art artificial intelligence? About what? I had a hard time hearing your voice. Okay. Sorry about that. On artificial intelligence? AI? Yeah, AI? yeah. Well, I think everybody's concerned about AI. Earlier this month, McConnell tripped and fell at Reagan National Airport while he was getting off a plane. And yesterday, as you saw, he abruptly stopped speaking mid-sentence at the podium. Let's get to CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Lauren, good morning to you. This is just the latest issue from McConnell, as we've outlined. Do we have an update on how he's doing this morning? 
Yeah, Poppy, yesterday we asked repeatedly how he was doing, and you heard from him directly saying he was fine. He did tell reporters yesterday evening that he got a call from President Joe Biden, who just wanted to check in on him, make sure he was okay, and then he sort of made a, a quick joke about being sandbagged, of course, alluding to the fact that the president himself tripped a couple of months ago over a sandbag on stage. Here's what McConnell said to reporters leaving his office last night. The president called and check on me. I told him I got a sandbag. And one of the most obvious questions after the incident yesterday was whether or not he was seen by a physician. Right here on Capitol Hill, we have the attending physician who is available to lawmakers. His office did not answer repeated questions about whether or not he had an opportunity to see a doctor after that incident yesterday. What we know is that he got lightheaded, that he stepped away for a few moments and then came back to the podium to answer a series of questions on a plethora of topics including about impeachment and his own health. But as you saw there in the clip from our colleague Manu Raju, who pressed him on what had happened at the beginning of the press conference, he just said he was fine. So that's all the information we have right now. But like you noted, there is just concern about whether or not this incident is an isolated one, given the fact that we now know that there have been other incidents of him tripping and falling more than what we had previously known that he had fallen at that event back in March at the Waldorf Astoria where he had suffered a concussion and a fractured rib. So getting a much bigger sense now of the full health picture of the Republican leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell. Wishing him well. Hope he's doing just fine. Lauren Fox, thank you. A top Senate Republican has a message for GOP candidates on how to block Donald Trump from securing the nomination. And those 2024 contenders continuing to court New Hampshire voters, including our next guest, Governor Krista Nunu, joining us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A major Republican cattle call in Iowa tomorrow night. Nearly all of the Republican presidential candidates, including former President Donald Trump, will converge at the Iowa GOP's annual Lincoln Dinner in Des Moines. Candidates will get a maximum of 10 minutes to talk to the audience. The Iowa event comes less than four weeks from the first presidential debate and a new Fox Business poll from that state shows Trump with a commanding lead over the rest of the field. One of the attendees at the dinner will be sizing up the candidates. That is someone who's not going to be a candidate, at least not this time. New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu, he decided against the 2024 presidential bid and said he will also not seek re-election in his state. Good morning. Thank you, sir. We're glad you're with us. Um, Good morning. What do you want to hear tonight? So uh, I think the importance of Iowa is, first, they're all going to be there. And what I've told all the candidates, my two cents of advice is don't don't focus on the policy. You got to bring some charisma. You got to bring some personality. You got to show leadership uh, at a different level, right? They got to they got to start kind of flaring out, if you will, and getting people excited about what might be possible, as opposed to just another candidate that isn't Donald Trump. So I think that's a, that's the, the mm -hmm. opportunity they have here: get people excited. Um, they're going to be on a stage, not on a debate stage per se, but on a stage, and it's the first time we'll see them all kind of back to back to back. So it's going to be pretty exciting. You have also said, though, you want candidates who are, quote, willing to swing and take the punch at beating Trump. We've seen one do that, and that is Chris Christie. Does that mean he's got your endorsement coming? 
No, no, look, I, I love Chris, by the way. I think they're all good. I think a lot of them are probably waiting for the debate stage. I really do. Now, I, will they be as hard as, as Governor Christie has been? I don't know. I mean, Governor Christie has been kind of full force. I love it. I love the show. I think he's doing a great job. I think all of them should be there. But I think you're going to see some more zingers. They got to kind of start separating themselves uh, without a doubt. And, and look, look what's happening to Donald Trump's numbers just right here in New Hampshire. He's mm -hmm. at 37%. That means 63% of the most hardcore voting base of Republicans don't want that guy. Huge opportunity. Trump is very, well, very beatable, he, but we have to find the candidate that's going to surge. That's what I was going to say. Huge opportunity unless you have too many people running against him and then and then he does it again. I mean, I just think it's interesting, this sort of growing course. You've got the op-ed by Mitt Romney this week saying if there's no viable path, pull out by you know February 26. You've got Chris Christie telling me on this show earlier this week he agrees. Now you have John Thune essentially echoing that, yep. you know, if you want someone to be anti-Trump, you got to get out of the race. You've said they actually need to do yep. that earlier, other Republican candidates, than what Mitt Romney is calling for. Well, a little bit. Look, I, it definitely needs to be before Super Tuesday. I think that's what, what they're talking about. Given that uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, I think you're going to see three or four candidates not get through the second debate and they'll drop out. Haven't you I'll said see, November think you'll see or December? Two or three more. I did, and I think you'll see two or three more by then drop out in the in the late October, November time frame because their polls are just sitting in single digits. And right before Iowa, my guess is you're going to see five people in the race, mm -hmm. something like that. Okay. After New Hampshire, you got to get who it down to one-on-one. -on -one. Who should stick around? Who should those five be? <laughs> Whoever's got it, right? Come Whoever's on. showing something, just and, give and me that's what, the, that, that's what this week is names. all about. It's it's really on personality. It's on leadership and personality. <laughs> I'm not saying these guys have to have a dance off on the Who stage the and, and figure it all. Although that would be good. Who you can answer my that questions, would be good, but candidly, because you're not running for anything again. So who has the personality? Well, I. I I have to be a uh, personality. Look, Ramaswamy, I got to tell you, is exciting people. Hmm. He gets people excited on stage. I think he's got to bring a little more uh, to, to it other than just being the other anti-woke guy. Um, I think some of the newer candidates, I think Bergam is spending some money. People look in his way. Um, uh, you know, the, the Pence, Haley, Tim Scott, they've been in the race a while. People know exactly where they are. They're great individuals with amazing records, but they've got to bring really some personality. And I think there's opportunity to do that, but we, we haven't seen a ton of it yet, but there's, there's still time. There's three or four months here where we'll really start narrowing down. You'll have people surge. You'll have them implode on the debate stage. It'll be a drama. Um, and that's the drama we want to see. We're tired of the Donald Trump drama. We want re real Republican drama. Donald Trump's not a Republican. We want real Republican you drama. drama. When we see him kind of go back and forth. Headline. Kristen <laughs> wants drama. The okay. right drama. Okay. The right all right, drama all right, right. to find the right uh, I want to turn to what the extraordinary thing that happened in a federal courthouse in Delaware yesterday and the Hunter Biden plea deal falls apart and your Republican colleagues in Congress are pouncing on it, um, trying to conflate what the whistleblowers have, have said, which is important to hear, but that's not what was at issue in the courtroom yesterday. But here's a sampling of what they said. It collapsed because it was a sweetheart deal from a family that was being protected, Hunter Biden being the main character. Hunter Biden is getting a sweetheart deal that no other American who wasn't rich and had a father as the president would ever get, ever. If you believe the whistleblowers and what they're saying, no, this was a sweetheart deal. It was corrupt in terms of how it was handled. You know, you have said you're not going to get elected president by bashing the Hunter Biden deal. Do you still feel that way? 
Well, look, I, I've said very clearly, anytime a politician or a politician's family has the word deal next to them, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Um, I don't think this is the only thing, but I'm going to tell you, I don't think Joe Biden is the nominee in 24. And this is just one drop, many Ooh. of the many drops in the bucket. No, Who I don't. Is? I think I think he's going to go through the primary process. I think he's going to collect all the delegates, and I think you're going to see a wild convention where where he and his people start steering the delegates somewhere else. I really believe that sincerely. I think it's a health thing. I think it's a, the Hunter Biden thing. They're doing everything to make sure that he doesn't have to testify and have to sit there in court and open all this other stuff. The whole book gets opened up if that process happens. Um, so look, I, I don't know whether it's a grand scheme. I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but I just think that's the way it's playing out. I don't think Trump or Biden Quick. are on that. Wow. Wow. Quickly, Politico article really was fascinating to me. Quote, Sununu's exit spells the end of a whole breed of Republican governor. Do you agree? No, no. Look, there's a lot of great governors in the wings. I, I appreciate that. That sounds, that, that sounds that's very flattering, very honored to, to be put into that context. But no, there's a lot of great governors in the wings in a lot of these more purplish states, you know, ready to, to, to get elected to surge forward, uh, whether it's in, in Arizona. I think there's still opportunity, whether it's in, I think, Kentucky and, and Louisiana this year are going to be great pickups for the Republican Party on the governor's side. So I think there's huge opportunities out there for the future. Governor Sununu, thanks for your time. You bet. Interview. So Governor Sununu wants better drama on the Republican side, but he may also be wishing for some, I think, on the Democratic side. We'll be watching that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this just in here, gas prices, this is maybe not what you want to hear this morning, climbing to an eight-month high. So what is fueling that rise? We've got a live report just ahead. Tell him thank you. Plus, what caused that dramatic crane collapse in midtown Manhattan? We'll speak to the head of the New York Fire Department. They'll join us next. That video, uh, which we showed you yesterday morning, not long after it had happened, the dramatic crane collapse here in New York City. Well, we can update it for you this morning. We, of course, were covering it live here on CNN this morning. Uh, we have now learned that 12 people in total were injured, three firefighters among them. All of those injuries, non-life-threatening. And we have, too, obtained another video which shows how construction workers were reacting during that collapse. Take a look. Is it going to keep falling off? Let's go. Fire officials say the fire erupted while the crane operator uh, was lifting about 16 tons of concrete. The operator noticed the fire in the crane's engine, tried to extinguish it, but was overwhelmed by the flames. Did manage to escape safely. An inspection by the New York City Department of Buildings found the crane and the impacted buildings were, quote, structurally stable after that collapse. Joining us now with the very latest on that investigation, the commissioner of the New York Fire Department, Laura Cavanaugh. Good to have you with us this morning, Commissioner. Um, any further information on what caused that fire? So the cause of the fire is still under investigation and we're working closely with the Department of Buildings to determine what the cause was and prevent anything like that from happening in the future. But I just have to say, you know, as the video you just show 
saw, you know, you really saw how close of a call this was. It's sort of a miracle um, that there wasn't more injuries either to our members or the construction workers. So, you know, thanks to quick action um, by everybody involved, including our members, uh, we were very lucky uh, that there were no injuries. And this is just, you know, an example of how complex, um, you know, emergency response is in a growing modern city uh, where you've got, you know, a, a fire 50 stories up that we're putting out from the building next door the same time that you have a collapse and you have patients being treated in the street by EMS. So really incredible work. It is incredible work. And I think so many people breathing that sigh of relief with you that uh, it was only, not that they're not important, only 12 people who were injured and that they were all non-life threatening. We look at that too, though, and in a city like New York, these cranes are everywhere. Uh, you see them all the time walking down the street, certainly in this area where that happened. The New York Times reporting this morning that the company that owns that crane has actually been involved in a number of high profile accidents, uh, one in 2008 resulting in death of two construction workers. How concerned should New Yorkers be this morning as they are walking amongst these cranes? So, you know, absolutely the city is uh, investigating this and anybody who has any liability or any fault here, um, you know, will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I think, you know, the city of New York has a lot of construction, as you mentioned, as New Yorkers are all very conscious of it. Um, but, you know, most of that is done safely. Uh, but we you know, have to make sure that we are constantly on top of this new construction and, and the challenges that it confronts for us. So we'll definitely be working with our partners in government to make sure that each and every one of these right. sites is. Uh, is up to code and operating safely. And just really quickly for you, because I do know we have another topic. Do you have a sense of when that investigation will be complete in terms of the cause of the fire? Uh, we don't yet, but certainly we'll keep you uh, apprised and, and be in touch as soon as we know. Okay. Uh, so you're actually in, in Maryland, as folks can see if they're reading that little locator on the screen there, because you are set to testify today. Um, and you're testifying to the Consumer Protection Safety Commission specifically about the risk of fires from e-bikes and e-scooters. Lithium batteries, you say, are the second leading cause of fire deaths in New York City after electrical fires. What's going on here to make them explode like that out of the blue? Yeah, it is really scary, and these really are explosions. That's exactly the right word. You know, they don't catch on fire the way we traditionally see in most fires. And these are in people's homes, you know, so they really have a ticking time bomb in their homes. And that's why we're here talking to the federal government. You know, we have passed lots of laws locally. We've done lots of enforcement. But what we see is unregulated devices keep flooding into the country and the city. And what really requires federal intervention to ensure that all of these devices are up to the same standards that, frankly, a lot of other devices that we have in our homes, like our phones, um, are regulated. And you aren't seeing these issues with those devices anymore. So we really really want to make sure not only that consumers know if they already have this device, how dangerous it is, so they can uh, assess whether or not they want to have that in their home, but also to make sure that uh, these devices in the future are safe, that they are, you know, are regulated and that people don't have to worry about them bursting into flames. We're out of, we're almost out of time, but, but, but quick yes or no, you said whether they, if they want to decide whether to have them in their homes, would you advise somebody to keep an e-bike or an e-scooter in their apartment or in their garage? I would advise them to keep it outside if they do have one in their homes. I'd advise them to take a look at it and see whether it's UL certified. Um, and you know, if it's not required uh, for their livelihood, I would caution people um, until these are fully regulated uh, not to keep one in their home. Commissioner Laura Cavanaugh, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Of course, thank you so much. That was really helpful information. Meantime, new this morning, we have learned that Wagner's leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, is in St. Petersburg, Russia. That is the same city 
as Vladimir Putin, the man he tried to depose in an armed rebellion just last month. Prigozhin was spotted meeting with an African dignitary on the sidelines of the Russia-Africa summit. This is the first time that Prigozhin has been seen in public inside of Russia since he led that armed mutiny. Prigozhin had only been seen in public on July 19th when he seemingly was inside Belarus. This morning, Secretary of State Antony Blinken joining the voices of international condemnation after an apparent military coup in the African nation of Niger. A group of military officers claimed to have taken over the country, ousted the president, Mohamed Bazoum, a key partner of the U.S. in fighting insurgency. His election two years ago was historic for the Central African nation. Meantime, protests have erupted in the capital today. Niger's foreign minister has called the soldiers' actions an attempted coup. He said he's spoken to the president, who has not been harmed. The Pentagon says there are about 800 U.S. troops stationed in Niger. President Biden about to meet with mayors at the forefront of this brutal heat wave as 150 million Americans, or 45 percent of this country, are under heat alerts today. And this just in, the second quarter GDP report is out. Our business team crunching the numbers. We'll have them for you. Stick around. So how much did the economy grow in the second quarter? We know now our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here. There is no slowdown here. I mean, the U.S. economy picking up steam in the second quarter, 2.4% economic growth. That's stronger than the first quarter, which was stronger than we had expected. Economists have been expecting, you guys, 1.8%. So this is really overshooting what they have been expecting. And it's driven by a lot of things, Um, you know, business investment, uh, housing investment, but also consumer spending. Taylor the consumer, Swift, I know, here we go, the Barbie movie <laughs> again. Say on Barbie. It's, it's all, the, I mean, when people want to do something or buy something, they're still doing it. Their consumer finances are still better than they were before the pandemic, although they have been drawing down their, their savings mm-hmm. um, from those pandemic years. So this is, this is a, another strong number. Um, way to keep bringing the consistent good news, so yeah. appreciate you. <laughs> um, also, though, Gas prices, I mean, I've noticed they started to go up a little bit, but you say part of that may also be related to this incessant heat. Yeah, there's a couple of things happening here. They're still well below last year. Last year at this time, we were hitting record highs, right? Um, 430 last year at this time. Today, they're 371. They've been jumping overnight. Some of these jumps have been pretty big. One of the reasons is the incessant heat means these refineries have to, are going offline for maintenance. They can't run, you know, full throttle when it's 115 with the heat index, just like People can't work full throttle uh, outside or in factory floors when it's so, so hot. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason is uh, Russia backed out of this grain deal. And so you had a rise in all kinds of commodity prices, corn, wheat, Mm. uh, barley. All these prices have been going up. And sometimes you tend to see see commodities move together. But Mm. mostly this heat thing has some of these refineries either slowing down or offline for maintenance. And that means they're not processing as much gasoline. Jeez. Another reason. I know. To get it in it's check. A, it's when really it comes an interesting change. An interesting, you know, paradigm, isn't totally. it? Totally. Right? And Thanks. how connected yes. it all is. It all is connected. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, well, speaking of this brutal heat wave, which continues to smother the United States, we have some new developments this morning. Uh, we're now looking at 150 million Americans under heat alerts today. That's like 45% of the U.S. population. Also, an emergency alert has been declared for the nation's largest power grid. In terms of that impact, we're talking about electricity for 65 million people across 13 states and Washington, D.C. Also new this morning, we've learned President Biden is set to meet with the mayors of Phoenix and San Antonio to talk about soaring temperatures and also to announce some new measures to protect workers. 
from the extreme temperatures. The threat here, it is very real. In Yuma County, Arizona, this 25-year-old farm worker, a father of two, lost consciousness while working and later died. Neighboring Maricopa County says 25 people so far have died as a result of this heat. And that county, of course, includes Phoenix. Temperatures in Phoenix, Phoenix reaching 118 degrees yesterday. Meteorologist Eric Van Dam is live in Key Biscayne, Florida today. Gabe Cohen also covering this heat wave for us. Gabe, let's start with you there in the nation's capital. Yeah, and so, Erica, right now it is starting to heat up here in Washington. It feels uh, close to 90 degrees at the moment, but bear in mind we have had uh, cloud coverage, a little bit of a breeze all morning. That number is going to rise quickly, and it's going to rise dramatically in the hours ahead. And today or tomorrow here in Washington, we could hit 100 degrees for the first time in seven years. And with the humidity, it's going to feel a lot worse than that. We're talking about a heat index close to 110 degrees today. Today, tomorrow, uh, even into Saturday, really no relief for people here in Washington, D.C. until Sunday. And so as as part of this, as part of the proactive measures to try to mitigate the impacts, the mayor here has declared this hot weather emergency. And they're taking several steps. They're extending hours for things like spray parks and swimming pools. Uh, they've launched, activated their uh, cooling centers. And they're also adding five public buses that they have rented as mobile cooling centers that they're going to be placing around the district, really designed to help some of the most vulnerable people in Washington, people who are living on the street, seniors, uh, lower income families who might not have access to air conditioning. Uh, we saw yesterday they are already taking uh, proactive, making proactive welfare checks, going around handing out waters, ice, and trying to get information uh, to people as to how to stay safe. Uh, take a listen. Here's what emergency management, their message was uh, to people across the district. We're very concerned and, and those health risks um, and mitigating them are paramount. So we want people to stay hydrated. We want people to make sure that if they don't need to be outside doing strenuous activities, that they're not. Uh, we want you to check in on your neighbors. This is an unprecedented event. Uh, this is something that you should not take lightly. And the cost to cool your home this summer is expected to be up 12% roughly because of, uh, largely because of this heat wave. We're talking about record prices, Erica. So again, it's not just people who don't have access to air who might be using these cooling centers. It is people who might be struggling to make ends meet and they just can't afford to blast air conditioning in their home for three straight days. Yeah, for sure. And, and Derek, to you, the specific reason you're in Florida and it's not because of how hot it is on land. It's because of how hot the water is and the damage to the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, from heat waves on land to heat waves in our oceans, we are here in uh, Biscayne Key, uh, Key Biscayne, I should say, as a follow-up on this uh, ecological disaster that's literally unfolding before our eyes, namely the dying of our coral reefs. Remember, coral reefs are so paramount in uh, protecting a natural barrier, per se, for the Florida coastline from storm surge and hurricanes, but they also provide billions of dollars uh, in tourism for, for people and the state as well. Now, unfortunately, they continue to uh, bleach and die because because of the abnormally warm water temperatures, the Coral Restoration Foundation found 100% coral mortality in some of the coral reefs in the southern Florida Keys. Now, 90% of excess greenhouse warmth 
uh, is actually absorbed within our oceans. And it was ever so apparent this week with our water temperature skyrocketing to near global record temperatures. We had a reading of 101 degrees uh, in Manatee, B, uh, Manatee Bay earlier this week that has since cooled off because we've had rain. Uh, but that's a real problem because that allows for uh, a complete shutdown of our, uh, uh, of our ecological fragile ecosystems, namely the corals, but it's also changing fish behaviors, uh, including sharks as well. They're searching for cooler water. It's just incredible what this warmth really does to the uh, planet. All right, Derek Van Dam, Gabe Cohen, appreciate it. Thank you both. It's just in the grand jury hearing evidence from the special counsel's probe into alleged efforts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election. They're now meeting again at a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. CNN reporters just saw jurors and a prosecutor working for special counsel Jack Smith enter the courthouse this morning. That grand jury normally meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but they haven't been seen inside the federal courthouse since last week. Well, it was a big game last night for the U.S. women's national soccer team, ending in a tie with the Netherlands. So... How is the team's popularity being felt across the country? Harry Enten joining us with this morning's number. Goal! <laughs> the highly anticipated rematch between the U.S. and the Netherlands did not disappoint. Plenty of excitement there. The Netherlands striking first to put the U.S. women in their first World Cup gold deficit since 2011. The reigning champs, though, they weren't going to give up that easily. Answering the Dutch goal with one of their own in the 62nd minute to tie the game. So that draw actually leaves the U.S. in first place in their group, still the favorite to lift the World Cup trophy for a historic third consecutive time. What do the numbers tell us? CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten is here. So, Harry, this was a pretty hard-fought tie for the women. Julie Foudy told us earlier that she really hadn't seen the best out of them, yet it's coming. It's coming, and they are still the favorites. They are still the favorites. So this morning's number is four, because that's how many U.S. Women's World Cup titles they have been since they started play back in 1991. They do much better than the men. That's why I love watching the women. They actually win. The men have never won anything since 1930. Now, in terms of the odds... For this particular year, the U.S. is the favorite, right? Their chance of winning is 29%. But look, Spain's pretty close behind at 22, Germany at 13%. So the, the plurality favorite, but there's still a better chance that somebody else might Women's win. soccer gaining popularity around the world. Just look at the fans there right now. But how does it stack up against others? Yeah, so take a look at the average viewership, U.S. average viewership. 17 million tuned into the 2019 Women's World Cup Finals. That beat at 12 million the 2023 NBA Finals and beat the 2022 MLB World Series at 12 million. And one other nugget that I want to point out is how much of a big deal the success of women's soccer has been for girls playing the game. The change since 1991 among high school girls, look at this growth, up 207% more girls playing soccer. All sports for girls, just 71%. So soccer has seen tremendous growth, and I think the women's success has been a large part of that. They've got some great role models to look up to. Harry, thank you. Thank you. All right, time for your morning moment. A California FedEx driver turned Good Samaritan, rescuing a man from a fiery car wreck. Look at this. Officials say the car burst into flames after veering off the road and hitting a guardrail. When Jonathan Rohrbach saw the accident, he immediately jumped into action, dragging the man away from the burning car just seconds before a series of explosions. And then he called 911 and stayed with the man until first responders arrived. So Rohrbach says he doesn't see himself as a hero, says he was just doing the right thing. The first thing that runs through your head is there might be somebody inside and 
I need to get him out. If I was hurt or, you know, my family or her or anybody, you know, if it looks like there's some way that you might need to help somebody, why not stop and help them? Officials say the cause of the crash is under investigation. The victim is expected to survive. Wow, that good, good moment. Absolutely. Thank right. you for being with us today. CNN New Central starts after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.